Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hello, Tech on Reg listeners. Last episode, we started an important conversation about systematic and institutionalized racism, specifically how those issues impacted students of color as they look to finance higher education. Uh, and we met with one fintech founder who's using his unique perspective to level the playing field and open up student loan opportunities to students of color where few pre- existed before. And today we're continuing that conversation with a group of diverse financial services professionals. And today we won't be talking about algorithms or AI. You won't hear me talking about regulatory oversight, data privacy, or consent decrees. Today we're talking about people about industry and about opportunity. Like I mentioned last week, despite the existence of laws, rules, and regulations and best practices, the financial services industry and FinTech for sure are suffering from some pretty abysmal statistics when it comes to racial diversity in the workforce, in positions of leadership, and most certainly the boardroom. So with us today to talk about why that is and what we do about it are three financial services professionals, each with their own unique story and perspective, and God bless them, opinions. So let's get this started, and I'd like to welcome our guests. First, we have Gary Rosier, Managing Director of Oak Street Real Estate Capital, Bavon Joseph, founder of the Greenwood Project, and Randy Rivera. Our listeners know you pretty well, so when I ask for introductions, I'm going to ask that you keep it brief. Gary, welcome to the show. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Dara, thanks for having me. As mentioned, I serve as Managing Director for Oak Street Real Estate Capital, a private equity real estate firm based here in Chicago, founded in 2009 by Mark Czar and Jim Hennessy. Our primary business is a net lease strategy that transacts with investment-grade corporations that many of you would know. We also have a smaller business, which is a seeding strategy with which we seed and invest in early stage real estate managers, many of those being women and minority owned as our business is. I'm a 1999 graduate University of Maryland economics. I spent my entire career in financial services working for three firms, two in the public equity space and, and again, one in the private equity space. It's been a unique journey for me because I kind of got stuck into the traditional path of you should be a doctor. So uh, I was at University of Maryland on a biology scholarship, uh, quickly figured out that it just was not my cup of tea. But moreover, I had an internship with a gentleman in my neighborhood who was, you know, really the guy that had the biggest house and drove a Cadillac. Uh, and I reached out to him when I switched, you know, my career path to economics and just said, I'd love a job for the summer. Uh, and he put me in a small business in Chicago that he helped run. And, and from there, my career kind of took off because I was in a, in a small piece of that business that did 401k outsourcing and other benefits outsourcing. And I learned what a mutual fund was. And I was kind of taken by the fact that I never knew what a mutual fund was until I was a junior in college and was fascinated at how that created wealth. And from there, it was pretty simple to me. That was the rest of my career. I've been in it ever since. I love it. I've been somewhat of a trailblazer because in many places where you show up, I've been the only black face. Uh, It is better today than it was when I started in 2000, but it's still a pretty lonely place and the numbers bear that out. But uh, that is my story. Glad to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Dara, uh, Bavon, and my friend, Randy. Thanks, Gary. Bavon, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, so that's one correction. So I'm the co-founder of Greenwood. My wife, Elois, is the other founder. Um, 
So Greenwood is a about a six-year-old organization, a nonprofit here in Chicago. And our mission is really simple. It's just to introduce black and brown students from the south and west sides of Chicago to careers in finance. We do that through primarily using internships. We also have a high school program where we start working with um, financial uh, literacy and uh, talking about the markets with high school juniors and seniors. But, you know, I had a 20-year career in finance in New York on trading floors, the exchanges, um, originally from Trinidad, a really tiny island. But just, you know, I've always been uh, working at these firms and noticed the lack of diversity, looking around the office, not seeing many people who look like me, you know, and then uh, about five or six years ago, my wife and I decided to do something about it. So um, the Greenwood Project has worked with about over 300 young people so far. And those numbers continue to increase. The number of partners we work with continue to increase as well. And so we've really been able to have a great impact on the, the color of finance, so to speak, and increasing those numbers, as Gary talked about there. So um, happy to be here. I'm looking forward to ch- chatting with you guys. Thanks. And Randy, welcome back to the show. I think this is episode, the third episode that you've joined us on. Oh, thank you for having me. I think it's number three, correct? All of them have been different and they've been fun. And just to make it easier for you, you guys think most of your fan base or listener base knows me, but excited to represent FinTechs, the FinTech Trade Association of the Midwest, and look forward to sharing some of my thoughts being on financial services for 17 years at two large money center, one one large money center bank and one regional bank. All right. So I've got some stats that I'd like to start with, and they're not pretty. And actually, some of them come from a piece that I just, uh, that Randy, actually, you shared with me yesterday from Chris Brummer, Georgetown law professor, who published a piece just this week called FinTech's Race Problem. And according to Professor Brummer, who also has so many other titles and accolades that we don't have time to sort of get into them on the show. But he noted in his piece this week that the headline numbers in the private sector, in his words, don't look good. The Harvard Business Reviews reported that fewer than 2% of tech executives are Black, and only 5.3% of tech professionals are Black. And with fintech accounting for perhaps 10 to 15% of tech employment overall, the gross numbers of full-time African-American fintech executives and professionals could actually be in the hundreds, not thousands. That's what Professor Brummer had to say. To broaden that out a little bit to financial services more generally, rather than fintech specifically, uh, I'd like to talk about a study that from Mercer for the FSP, the Financial Services Pipeline Initiative, that was started in conjunction with the Chicago Federal Bank of Chicago in 2013. So in spring of 2018, they published a study. And based on the data provided by the participating organizations, the representation of African-Americans and Latinos in positions of leadership in the industry is actually on course to decline. Now, obviously, that's not the direction that we want those numbers going in. So before we get into sort of the other laundry list of statistics, those numbers in and of themselves paint a pretty drab picture uh, in terms of what the black and brown pipeline for talent actually looks like. Gary, I'd like to start with you because one thing that you mentioned as we started this conversation was that at least from your viewpoint, it might be looking a little bit better than it did when you started. But sort of up against these numbers, I'm sort of curious as to your reaction and maybe what you think accounts for either the actual disparity or perceived disparity in the improvements in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised by the numbers. I think that um, that, that's sort of been the pattern for some time. And and as frustrating as that is, it's no surprise. You know, I think a lot of it starts even earlier than what you may think. So most of us don't learn about finances until we're adults. It's actually the first problem. So it's hard for you to really choose a career in finance when you haven't even talked about finances until you're an adult. And, you know, this is a problem that we've seen for many years. And 
you know, my former boss, Melody Hobson, always tells a story that, you know, many of us took woodshop growing up, but like none of us whittle today, you know, and there was no class that you took in high school or even before that to talk about finances. So I think that's the first, you know, issue. So you can't really have a, a good steady pipeline if you don't have enough people that have knowledge of the industry that can then be pushed into the industry. Some of that's cultural too. You know, again, in black, black households, we just didn't grow up talking about finances and investments and things of the like at the dinner table. We just didn't do that. So again, you're talking about something that is not familiar to most people, which is why I like organizations like Greenwood and some others that, you know, show the industry. Because again, it's just not one of those mainstream career paths that we are, you know, pushed into. Again, for me, it was like, okay, go be a doctor. So what was I going to go do? Go be a doctor. Where at the end of the day, nobody ever told me, you know, go be a partner at a you know private equity firm, uh, which, which really, you know, builds wealth. And I wish somebody would have told me that then rather than me finding out later in my career. But I think that's, you know, the issue is, is less about what we're taught, you know, later on in life. It's actually what we're taught early in life. And I think that if we can change that piece, people would then have a clear picture of the industry and would be, you know, at least intrigued enough to possibly have it as a career. So that's my perspective on, I think that pipeline starts even earlier than you think. So Bavan, tell us about what Greenwood is actually doing to sort of address the issue that Gary just raised. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that, Gary, 100%. So as we all know, the average, like, you know, age of an intern at a financial firm is like between that junior and senior year of college. You know, and like Gary said, you know, what I've found with the Greenwood programs is we have to get at these kids at an earlier age. You know, uh, we started with high school juniors. So they're young, they're impressionable, they're ambitious, they want to learn something, they want to be challenged. You know, and they've never been exposed to this world before. You know, so my motto is kids can't be what they can't see. You know, so if you don't know that private equity exists, you'll never go down that track, like Gary said. So we start really early exposing them. We do about 40 company visits a summer between New York and Chicago, bringing them to meet professionals like Randy and Gary. You know, we want our kids to see people who look like them in these roles. We want to, with them so that can let them know they can be there one day. So that's why we do all these lunch and learn events and we come on, we do a woman of Wall Street event to show young girls that women work in finance as well too. And that's actually translated to our kids going on to college, going into internships year after year while in college and then going into careers down the road. So we're very proud that 70% of our alumni have gone on to get full-time roles in finance between Chicago and New York. Really a testament to the fact that we started early with them. They stuck with us. And uh, they got paid because these kids can't afford to have a paid, unpaid internship either, coming from where they're coming from. But I agree with Gary, exposure at an early age really makes a difference. So Randy, I want to turn it over to you. So given what Gary and Bavan just said, I want to refer back to that Mercer report. A few other findings sort of on that topic, because to me, there's the pipeline and then there is the quote unquote choke point that Mercer actually refers to in its study. And that choke point also exists in the promotion of African-American and Latino talent into senior management and executive level positions. So it's one thing to get through the door. And it sounds like, Bavon, your organization is doing everything it possibly can to make sure that you get to the talent early, you expose and educate those students who are interested about the possibilities that are available to them. But then what happens once you get in? Brandy, having been at two very large institutions, very interested in your perspective there. Yeah, so I think that what happens is, uh, and this is part of the challenge in terms of, you know, the unintended consequences. So there's generally a lot of different programs when you apply or go to particularly larger institutions, the analyst programs, the associate programs, which are pretty linear and pretty well-structured. Tremendous platforms to get a lot of exposure of the businesses across various dimensions at the bank. 
and how they work. Basically, good training ground for you to learn how to do a job. The challenge is because of the nature of those programs, unless it's really intentional work put in on the front end of making, of connecting these uh, talented individuals with senior people that either look like them or will be allies in their career, it's really difficult to succeed. And I'll give you a good example from a practical matter. The private bank institutions or the investment brokerage houses all have great training programs for folks even out of undergrad. Great to see Greenwood Project working with a lot of these organizations. They clearly love smart and talented people people, both, both boys and girls, young men and women that are going to grow their careers. But when you're used to growing up in a household where you're talking about money all the time, you just tend to connect the dots quicker around where there's a potential opportunity. And so if you're a second year analyst at one of the top tier premier firms in Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, it all of a sudden hits you that person A connected with person C, there could be a business opportunity. And when you escalate that opportunity, all of a sudden you become a rock star in that team because you've helped, you've allowed your senior people to do what they do best, which is deliver results and, and, and deliver the best value of the organization. But that's difficult when you're coming from, a, in my case, two immigrant parents whose my entire experience was kind of breaking the, the, the mold in terms of what I understood to be real. So I think the organizations need to create a lot of proactive structures. And, and that's why there's a choke point, because when you have enough of those bells ringing that these individuals are making these connections that are bringing real value to the business, those individuals get the right attention. It's not that the other people don't, because they don't have the network to really affect those opportunities as quickly. And so they're not going to get as much attention. It's complicated because I don't think there's, again, ill will of these organizations. I just think that I'm training a puppy right now. It's incentive-based behavior, right? When you see the, 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 right, the right outcome of a business win, you incent and, and call a lot of positive attention to that behavior. So I use that as an example, but I have a few more. Ultimately, I think it just requires a lot of rolling up the sleeves by management and people of color that are in those positions to help. So we talked about the issues with advancement and promotion. Gary, I want to turn it over to you to talk about retention because there's one thing to get in and you know put your head down and do a good job. And maybe there are a whole host of reasons why the choke point sort of exists for many of the reasons that Randy just articulated. But there's a retention issue too. So the Mercer study also says every organization interviewed says that retention of African-American and Latino talent remains a challenge. Your thoughts as to why that is. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it is, or I would first say a lot of companies actually do a very good job of getting people of color in the door. I mean, there's lots of great organizations that have, have had years of, you know, excellent record of getting enough people of color in the door. The reason why they don't stay is, is because, for one, people of color don't see a path to success once they get there. And they don't see a path to success for a number of reasons. Randy mentioned one, you're coming in with not a whole lot of uh, help from the outside and you can't immediately add to uh, the bottom line of that organization. You would just sort of get passed over and you'll miss the opportunities. The other is there typically aren't other people of color in leadership positions that can bring them up. And if you don't have that sponsor, so to speak, or mentor that can do that for you, you probably won't last long. And if you don't see that path either to senior leadership, if your board doesn't have people of color on it, what ends up happening is after you get through that first sort of training program or two or three years, you, you may say, this career is not for me. And it, it's actually not that the career is not for you. It's just you didn't see a path to success within that career, but it, it still could be the right career for you. I mean, that's why you see a lot of the 
specific to African-Americans in the investment business, um, there's a lot of folks that now run businesses, great entrepreneurs. Many of them started at the big firms and they ended up leaving because, again, they didn't see that if there was a path to success and felt that they could do better taking the entrepreneurial route. And, and that's what you saw there. So for me, I think the retention really comes down to, do you have enough people of color in position to mentor and sponsor? And is there a clear path to success you know, for those people of color? And again, if they don't see it, there's no way to keep them. And that's why you see those retention numbers the way they are. Can I jump in real quick here? I know Bavon has some really good insight, but you know, Gary, it's interesting you say that there's some really good stats in a Harvard Business Review study of Harvard Business School alums and the highest employment status of black alums of Harvard are entrepreneurs on, on yeah. their own. No question. No question. That, that is for sure. I mean, that's actually amazing how many successful black investment firms there are today you know, versus 20 years ago when it was essentially John Rogers and Eddie Brown. There's actually a lot today. And if, and if you pull any of those folks, many of them went to top tier institutions and they work for a top tier bank on Wall Street. And you got to say to yourself, well, why are they not staying? You know, they're not staying because there was never a path to success for them. Bavon, what are your thoughts? I agree. So there's a huge opportunity gap that exists in America, right? And that's what we focus on. So connections are important, like your social capital, man, that's going to get you everywhere you need to go. You know, I tell students that uh, your network is going to open doors that your, de- your degree just can't. That's just the way it is. That's the way of the world, right? So students who come to us, they're not connected to Gary. They're not connected to Randy. But they immediately know me. Now they're connected to my network. Social capital plays a huge part in that. You know, I worked in a, a bunch of, uh, I was at UBS and Chase and a bunch of firms in New York for a long time. And I, too, was really frustrated because I didn't see any path forward for me. You know, so I, I bounced around a little bit. I ended up going to like prop shops where I can be a jack of all trades and, and just learn, you know, smaller environment, get to learn and meet everybody and network more. And that really accelerated my career goal, my career path. My last real job, I tell people, is I was a CTO at a hedge fund here in Chicago. But again, that only came along with because of I maintained those connections. And uh, I had people to sponsor me, speak, you know, good about me and say, hey, you need to give Bavon a look. You know, uh, he's done good work, maintain those connections. And to be honest, I had to work twice as hard and three times as hard as everybody else. And I uh, would always find myself on the short end of like compensation and then just you know, moving up and advancement and stuff. So I'm glad I maintained those networks and helped to form Greenwood. Actually, it was a catalyst to get Greenwood started because I go back now and say, hey, Hey, uh, Mr. Joe from, you know, hedge fund manager from ABC firm. This is what I'm doing. You got to pay it forward now. You know, let's open the door for some kids. So I'm leaning on my own social capital now to have some doors open for Greenwood students. So I think networking, early exposure, those are the keys. I think I'm very familiar with that FSP study. And they talked about LaSalle Street is a rotating door. You know, black and brown professionals are just going up and down LaSalle Street all the time. You know, that's why there's no like influx into like getting the numbers to move and to move the needle. They're just jumping around from firm to firm trying to find a home, right? So a lot of firms talk about DNI, diversity and inclusion, but they'll bring a lot of people in the door, but there is no inclusion. So folks just leave. You, know, you don't feel welcome. You know, you're going to try to jump around and like Gary said, start your own firm. I believe in ownership. I believe like it's hard to change a system. You know, and um, sometimes you need to build your own system. So a lot of friends of mine have started their own companies and, you know, entrepreneurship has opened up a lot of doors for them, which in turn allows them to open up a lot of doors for people coming behind them. So at Greenwood, we always preach lift as you climb. So don't forget where you come from, open the door for somebody else, you know? So it's funny as I hear the three of you speaking, I'm connected to FinTech, but I'm not a financial services professional. I'm a legal professional. And it's 
both not funny haha, but sort of ironic that identical conversations happen at the highest level of the legal industry as well. So I think when you look at professional services in general, the problems facing the diversity statistics in financial services are maybe nearly identical. The legal industry might actually even be a little bit worse, but the conversations are exactly the same. It's about recruiting. It's about retention. It's about the same choke points. As I sort of reflect on my own personal experience as a female professional, the Part of what Gary and Von Randy are talking about entrepreneurship is actually the reason I left big law to go start my own business and my own firm because sort of the challenges for female advancement in that industry were not too dissimilar from some of the situations that you all are talking about. And Gary, I'm sort of reminded of a conversation that that we had sort of in preparation for today about making a difference going forward and using your economic power in order to do that. So entrepreneurship, right, is obviously one way where we gather economic power if the sort of institutions that we we were a part of before aren't providing us that path. We say, screw it. We're going to make our own path to economic power. I'd love to hear sort of your perspective about, you know, for those listeners who are either sitting in one of those large institutions right now, whether you're talking about financial services legal or any other professional services who are looking for sort of that path to sort of that economic power, both inside and outside of their institution, what advice do you have for those folks? Yeah, you know, at at the risk of of being political, you know, you can go a couple routes. One is a legislative route. And for many years, that's what people of color have chosen. And we've had some great legislation passed on our behalf over the last hundred years, which, you know, is really important to give you the opportunity to then, you know, go out and acquire economic power. And again, I think it's economic power that gives you you know, the ability to make real change because the power is in your hands versus in somebody else's. You know, if it's legislative, you have to hope you get the right people in place to do right on your behalf. It's economic power. You can just do it, you know, as you wish, as you see fit based on your values. So that's a very important thing. But the one thing I always say is you you have to have body of work first and you have to have shown that you have the skill set to be able to do the job before you can really kick in the front door and start screaming for change. You, You can sort of do those things simultaneously, but I think it's really important, particularly for young people that have, you know, so much vigor and, and so much energy around some of these issues is to say, yeah, it's great, you know, to use your voice, but people will hear you more and they will respect you more. And they'll probably get in line, you know, once you have body of work behind you, you know, to prove that you can get the job done, you know, and I always point to people, you know, like John Rogers and, and Robert Smith, you know, these are guys that, you know, they were successful, you know, well before they, you know, started kicking in the door and doing the things they're doing today. And, and people listen, I think people listen because they see that they've, done the work. Uh, they know what it takes and they've been successful in their craft. And I think that's really important for, for young folks, like I said, particularly, you know, coming in, you know, you spend those first, you know, years, you know, head down, really focusing on the body work, focusing on what it is that you bring to the table. Uh, people will respect you more after you do that. Yeah. I'm sort of reminded of advice that I got early on in my career as well. It's like, while you're trying to move the Titanic, also don't forget to be excellent at what you do. You went to school, you got a degree you're providing services to clients, be excellent at what you do. And that'll free you up to, you know, do the other things that you want to do. Randy, what about you? You had a 17 year long, very successful career as I think you've told me as typically one of the only brown people in the room. How'd you do that? So first of all, I had some people take risks on me and they were not brown or black. And I appreciated that. So I think the first takeaway is when you find people with work ethic 
and an eagerness to learn that are generally curious, invest in those people. If you're an executive or a position of management, uh, make, take the bet on those folks as soon as you can. Second thing that happened to me is I did have people of, of color that were I reported to who were really great at polishing off some of the rough edges that I had because I didn't have a career and understanding of what working in you know financial services was. And a lot of credit goes to Angela Martin, John Maul. Angela Martin is currently the president of Payment Tech at JP Morgan Chase, and she was a terrific manager. She obviously had her struggles as well, so it was really great to be able to learn from her. But uh, the, the the piece that I would say the the lesson I would share that I think is probably I'd like to communicate most importantly from this from this perspective is so in entrepreneurship there's a con a mindset of failing fast right so get over the making mistakes early and if you do that successfully you'll learn you get good feedback and you'll get another crack at it or you'll improve the process or you'll address some one of the shortcomings you might have or uh, overcome an obstacle the business is, is facing and as a parent one of the things you want to teach your kids if you read any study about any any, any anything about how to raise entrepreneurs is you got to teach them that failing is okay it's not something that is going to be a problem so what I would say in corporate America in particular, if you were really trying to find a way to encourage people of color to develop and challenge them to grow, is to give them that chance. And that's difficult because in corporate America, it is designed to be anti-risk. And I think that that is super important that you take the opportunity when you see the, the people that are giving you the effort and the, have the right, have, have the right uh, ingredients for success to let them fail fast, let them learn and do that quickly. I think that's something that's not easy in a corporate setting, but is heavily rewarded when it comes to developing talent. So I understand sort of the perspective you have about failing fast in the entrepreneur's mindset. Do you actually think, and Bhavan, I'm going to turn it over to you to answer this question. Do you actually think you have the luxury to do that in corporate America? I mean, some people have the luxury to do that. As a woman, I didn't think I had the luxury to do that. So do you think that actually exists? Like you read my mind, Dara. <laughs> uh, I was in a conversation this week, actually, with someone who they want to make a significant investment in Greenwood. But it was almost like they were calling me in advance to warn me of what to expect when I go to this meeting with the owners of the firm. And they said, you know, they've seen in the past where people of color, founders of color, entrepreneurs of color don't get the runway to make mistakes like everybody else does. It's like you got this one shot, man, and you, you make it happen or that's it. You're out the door. You know, and other people... Terrible ideas, terrible plans, <laughs> terrible whatever, but they got that network, right? They got that social capital. They got that mattress to fall on. You know, when we fall, we fall hard, man. We, we got to start from scratch and it's hard to climb back up there. So no, I don't believe that we get those same luxuries. Uh, I agree with Gary and I preach this to our kids over and over. Like the reason we are so hard on them is because we know what they're going to face, right? Preparation is the key. You got to be ready. Opportunity doesn't go away. It just goes to the next person. So is either you're going to take advantage and jump in and get it done and always be ready. That's kind of been my approach for my own career. And that's kind of the mantra at Greenwood with uh, Greenwood scholars, high school and college students. You know, like Gary said, you got to have a body of work. You know, I'm glad that I worked 20 years in finance. I can, you know, I'm credible now because I can go to firms and say, yes, I can find you diverse talent that can come in here and add value right away. Because I'm going to do the work to find them, get them ready, bring them to your doorstep. You don't have to do that work. And we'll continue to mentor them and give them that support that they need to stay there, to want to stay there. 
Yeah, to answer your question, no, no, I don't feel like we get those same luxuries as everybody else. Gary, what uh, do you I think? will say no. Can I, I want to jump in here because I think this oh, is a conversation. Of course Gary and I you do. Of course you Gary do. And I, Gary and I have had this conversation, and I do believe there's a lot of responsibility you have to take for your own career. You can't take that for granted. You absolutely cannot imagine that you're not prepared. You're not going to do your best. You're not going to do, put your hardest work in. However, I think that we're in an opportunity right now with the conversation that we're having as a country where if you're in charge of these businesses and you really want to train, attract, and retain top talent of color, you have to change the narrative from they were very loud spoken at the last meeting and they have an opinion to, you know, maybe we should listen to them because I think that is one of the challenges. And I would say this personally, I would, I would find myself after meetings and management saying, I wish I could have said something. And I, I regret sometimes not being more vocal either on behalf of my team or on behalf of an opinion, because I don't believe that we create safe environments or large institutions for people of color. And while it's, if we, if we, my point is, if we handle the personal responsibility the right way and you have the right corporate structure where you have people that can help you, encourage you to develop and grow, then all of a sudden the likelihood of success is greater. If we keep, the, if we keep working on one side of the equation, we're not going to have as much success. All right, Gary, I want a little bit of insight into this ongoing debate that you and Mr. Rivera have with each other. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll preface conversation by saying Randy and I agree upon 99.9% of things, but that 0.01%, that's where we spend all of our time. So I do agree with everything. Well, that's you good. Said. That makes for good listening. Can we, can we go really, there? Can we talk about that it, stuff? It, it really does. Well, listen, I, I think Bavon's right. We, we, we don't have the luxury and we never have. You know, I guess my point is, and maybe I'm just very focused on, you know, what I can do. I've always been that way. I, I just think that you've got to be so good, they just can't deny you. And at a point in time, if you've got that body of work behind you, it's just going to happen. And, and yeah, I guess I can scream and say, listen, hear me, hear me, hear me. But at the end of the day, I'd rather I work just punch you in the face and let you know. But to me, it's just always been the, the better way to go about it. So it was always just my perspective is that my dad told me that as a child. He said, listen, son, you're black. You're going to have to work harder. I'm telling you now so you don't use it as an excuse later. So I, I could never come home you know, and say, dad, man, just my teacher, she was so hard on me today. Or you know, I had to work so much harder here or there. Or when I got in trouble in the playground from doing the same thing the other you know, white kids were doing, you know, they, they, they singled me out, you know, cause I would come home and say that and he would say, yeah, but I already told you that was going to be the case, you know, so just be better, you know? And, and so that's always just been my perspective. Again, not saying that what Randy's saying is wrong. Cause he's not wrong. You know, I actually do think that we need to hold people accountable on the other side as well. And that's the one thing I do see is very important about, you know, this period where everybody is just woke, you know, I'm like, I'm glad you're woke, you know, now I'm going to hold you accountable you know, for the, the TV ads you've been putting out, the radio ads you've been putting out, you know, now I want to see, you know, how many people of color you're going to hire, how many people of color you're going to promote, you know, because to me, that's the only thing that matters. You know, the message doesn't do a damn thing for me. I really could care less about it. I'm glad you're enlightened, but I want to see, you know, what you're going to do with that now. And I think we have the ability where Randy is exactly right. We now have the stage to hold him accountable. I will say that on both sides here, because I had a conversation with him, uh, this week with a founder and a potential co-founder for a fintech that I know. And I know both of the people I would consider dear friends. And they're asking me, and I'm, I'm looking to, to help them in the movement and the promotion of their, of their business and the growth and helping them think about fundraising. But, you know, I was very blunt. And I'm using blunt instruments because the other instruments don't work anymore. 
you cannot do this with two white guys as founders and two white guys as investors and not tell me that in today's society living in a metropolitan market like Chicago, you cannot find one co-founder that adds value to the, to the mix in the equation. And for me, this is a, a point that I think is really critical for us people of color to hold ourselves and our networks uh, accountable. Because if we, once you achieve a certain level of respect and you have a voice, it is on us to go out and then make the case. I don't disagree with Gary. If you miss your shot because you're not you're, you're cut corner or you weren't thorough, that's a problem. But the reality is that we cannot also continue to just get give people passes because you know it's just different in corporate America where risk is looked down upon. You can't do that. And I, I've looked at Instagram, I've seen LinkedIn, I've seen everybody's got a comment. And right. you know, one of the things I, I give a big hat tip for the Bavon. Of all the people that I've seen committed to the cause of, of raising the of visibility of people of color, Bavon and his organization are putting work in. They're doing the hard part. So if that's what's happening on the talent side, if that's what's happening on the organizational side, the institutions need to create those opportunities and environments where people can thrive and learn. Okay. So there's a practical question here. Because large corporate institutions, they will post their black square on Instagram. They will put out the press relief saying they've made a donation to the NAACP. And they, they will write, you know, missives to their, you know, 5 million followers uh, on social media about their commitment to the cause. How do you actually keep those organizations accountable when they, they say all the right things? The surface is, ni- is, is nice and shiny. Right. They're saying what they're supposed to say. They're saying what their PR teams want them to say. And I think legitimately because they might believe it, but translating the surface into the actual work, not everyone's Bavan. Not everyone has a Bavan. So how do we hold those institutions accountable today going forward? Because we can't turn back time. So right now I have like everybody's PR people reaching out to me and everybody's HR people reaching out to me right now because everybody wants to jump on the bad wagon and put that statement out. And I'm saying, Hey, it's great. Again, like Gary said, like, I'm glad that you're awake right now and you see what's going on, but here's what I need you to do. You can't go to Michigan and recruit every summer because the founders went there and that's where they attended school. Right. That's not going to work. My kids don't go there. Right. They're in a small school downstate Illinois somewhere. But they're super talented. They need the same shot as everybody else. I want you to lock me in for a five-year deal where you're going to take five interns every summer. I mean, easy. And you're going to sponsor them. You're going to pay them. You're going to cover all their transportation. You're going to give them all the support they need because where they're coming from, they need that. Right? And then we're going to convert them to investors every summer. That's what we do. Every student gets a funded brokerage account, a free share of stock, and $50 to start investing. I want you to match that because you want to create generational while starting with these kids. Uh, so they were playing, I mean, a lot of firms said no to me over the years, and those same firms are like knocking on our door like nonstop right now, right? So my pushback is, I'm not going to, I'm not bitter, <laughs> you know, I'm saying, okay, money is nice, but opportunity is better, right? Your, your, your firm is 99% white. When I joined, your, your diversity numbers went through the roof, and when I left, it went through the floor. So, you know, I mean, I, I know what your problem is, I can help you solve it, but you got to support us, and you got to support our students, and you got to like examine your HR practices, the way you're recruiting students. You know, if I told Goldman Sachs this, and I don't know if I should remember to mention her name, but I'm going to say it. I, I told Goldman Sachs this five years ago, and they asked me. Too late. <laughs> it's okay. I pick on Goldman all the time on this show if you've listened to any other episodes. <laughs> they asked me, What's, what makes you guys so different? Why is it? They say, yeah, we recruit from HBCUs. We go to Harvard. We go to Howard and stuff like that. I say, yeah, but don't assume that everybody knows who you are. And don't assume that everybody wants to work for you. 
I said, think about all the millions of students, black and brown kids out there who don't know who you are and what you do. They're not coming to your table at the career fair. That's not happening. We have kids at Howard, right? But you couldn't, if you couldn't find them, right? We could find them. So again, these big brands, these big banks, they have this, again, you know, it's been, I mean, it's, it's been the norm for a long time, but it's no longer going to be that way. They have to realize that schools and prestige and privilege, you know, internships are a privilege now because you got to know the right people to get your foot in the door. That just cannot be. You got to dismantle that completely. You know then we got to open the door for everybody. Now, to Gary's point, you can't just open your door and say, let everybody in. You got to be able to do the work, right? Because at the end of the day, you're going to make everybody look bad. And with, with Greenwood, we tell them, I'll open the door for you. I'll get you ready, but you got to do the work. You're not going to go in there and make us look bad. That's not going to happen. You know, so we have really high standards. And I'm not asking firms to give us an unfair advantage. I'm saying give us a chance. Like, that's it. Just look somewhere else. If you want to be different and look different, you got to do something different. So I think that's interesting in sort of, you know, you, you're getting right now a lot of inbound inquiry. Organizations who want to be part of what you're doing. How genuine do you feel that most of the outreach is? Do you think it's convenient? Do you think it's timely? Or do you think it comes from a genuine place of, holy crap, we really need to do better. Man, we suck at this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, I don't care. The end of the day right now, the reality is it's like Warren Buffett's investment strategy. When the, when the tide rolls down, you see who has shorts on, right? Mm -hmm. And right now, put up the capital, create, make the investment in places like the Greenwood project. You know, heck, if you want to, if you don't want to go really extreme and and go risky, come and partner with organizations like a fintech or or groups that are encouraging entrepreneurship. Create future entrepreneurs of color. Give us the resources to do that. You know what's going to happen in five years? Your work will tell the story of how committed you are. So right now, I am not. Now, granted, I will say we're also we shouldn't be lapdogs. And we were, and when you give the money, don't expect to get somebody that's a puppet that's going to say what you want them to say. Because at the end of the day, I look around this uh, on this webinar, I don't see you, or, or this podcast, I don't see one person that's a wallflower that's going to be shy about holding you accountable. But I don't care where the money comes from. Don't matter to me. I mean, I don't know if they're sincere or they're not. And I don't think it matters. You know, as long as, long as you are doing right and you are at least following through with what you say, you're going to do, or you're living up to your values. It doesn't matter to me. And my whole thing is how do you hold them accountable? You know, my thing at a time like this is let us in the tent. That's how I want you to be accountable. You know, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited that you're going to send money to some organizations, you know, that will help people of color. I think that's great. Many of them need it. Many of us serve on those boards, so we know they need it. But my thing is, I think you give us the economic opportunity. Let us in the tent because, because that has a much larger margin. Right. And all of us in finance, we know what, what wide margins do. You know, you let us in the tent and give us that economic opportunity. That's how I want them to hold us coming. And again, if you're sincere about it or not, it's completely irrelevant to me. I knew that question was going to get Randy all riled up. You think I didn't know exactly what I was doing? Yeah, I, I sure agree. did. I agree with Randy and Gary. I know for a fact some of these firms aren't genuine. I, I work there. <laughs> you know? <So> I, know <laughs> I know that's not in their DNA. But again, I don't care because that money's going to go to somebody and I can do a lot of good with it. No, so I, I agree with all three of you. I, I do think that there is a benefit, and maybe this is almost 15 years as a litigator talking. I think it's important to understand the motivations of the 
of the people and organizations that you're dealing with. And you're right. It doesn't matter why they're writing a check. It doesn't matter why they're doing what they're doing as long as they're doing that. But going forward to keep the momentum going, I do think it's, it's very important to understand the, the true motivations and sort of where the decision-making thought process comes from. Because once you do have some momentum, you want to be able to keep it. And I think part of keeping that momentum is definitely, as my dad used to say, knowing who your customers are. I'll disagree with you on that there, but you know, I still love you. Again, I I just don't think it matters. You you know, how you keep the momentum going is it, well, if you let us in the tent, we'll keep the momentum going. I don't have to rely on you to do it. If there are more of us in the room and we have a voice, we're there. You can't take that away. And again, what I know is there is plenty of talent. You know, that used to be the argument is I can't find it. Well, you can find plenty of it today, you know, and statistically, once we're in, we're highly successful. You know, we we should see that amongst, you know, diverse, you know, investment firms all the time. You know, there's stats on this, you know, where we would have to work harder to get the business. And then once we got the business, we were under a a, a much larger microscope and we're outperforming. It it just didn't make sense. But so you're so Gary, you're right. The the performance metrics have hold on, Randy. I'll let you in. Let me let me get it out. The performance metrics have always been there, which is why some of the the statistics that we see around the diversity numbers are so maddening because it's economically irrational. And these are supposed to be institutions that are designed to make money. So why are you making economically irrational decisions when all of the data shows you that if you do X, Y, and Z, who cares why you're doing it? You're going to make more money. So I, I don't disagree with that point. You know, it's just dollars and cents. Randy, what would you like to say? A couple things. First of all, if you make it in financial services, you're a success. And by a metric of above average, you know, which I think is in the way financial services institutions rate people, a, a tremendous accomplishment because a lot of people that show up and just do their jobs and leave. But if you're above average and you've come from a, a background that's not your typical background, you have already proven that you are a survivor of not just a jo- keeping a job, but of winning in a society that is lined up against you. So in my opinion, in my opinion, that grants you an opportunity and you just, you've earned a chance to get bigger challenges. One, if, you, if you've proven that you can deliver consistently and the results are there, then in my opinion, that is a not only above average talent, that is above, above average talent. That person is a winner by definition. I said once on a panel that I was on that the only difference between the people that are growing up in challenging neighborhoods where um, they're being recruited by gangs and drug dealers and cartels and th- these individuals, the kids growing up through those, through those ranks, the people that reach the top of those pyramids and, you know, the law defines those as, you know, organized crime. The skill that they have to survive and win in their businesses would equally find success in corporate America, assuming they have a moral, a moral compass, right? That's a big difference, but assuming they have a moral compass, I would say that a child born, born at the age of one is not interested in being a criminal. It's inherently good. If you, it's a matter of where they're, where they're allowed, what field they're allowed to play on. So are you letting them play in the field where they can find that success and do it in a way that they've got mentors, they've got opportunity, they can spread out opportunity for other people, which is what they're doing in their respective neighborhoods. Or are you forcing them, are you keeping them out of the tent, Hugh Gary's um, analogy? My last point is, and this goes- Oh, to we got another point, one. All right. The choke point, the choke point problem. 
pay the people what they deserve. This is one of my biggest pet peeves. Oh, great. They came from this summer program. And, you know, SEO is a great example of a program that, that's to produce a tremendous amount of talent. I haven't seen the stats, but I have a hunch. If we actually got full transparency on the compensation stats of the individuals coming out of SEO, there, there's a significant percentage discount to a person of color and how they're paid within these financial institutions than there is outside of that. So in my opinion, if they give you the results, reward them with more opportunity, but then most importantly, pay them what you would pay somebody in different other color skin or what program they came through your institution. On that point, for anyone listening who has control over the compensation of any individuals while you're at it, pay women the same too. Just want to throw that in there. We, we still make a whole lot less than less productive men who do the same job, but that's not the topic of this podcast. Just couldn't let that one go. So we're wrapping up close to the end of our time. And I would like to do that by asking each and every one of you, if there was one thing that you want to leave our listeners with that they should be thinking about right now on this topic, what would it be? Bavon, I'm going to let you go first. I would say that, we, again, we need to close the opportunity gap that exists in this country. I personally believe that opportunity can drive out hopelessness because the students that I work with, they're all from under resource communities in this country and the city. And, you know, just touching back on what Randy said, you know, if you are born into a family, you know, a privileged family, and you are destined for success, you can't deal with failure. That's just, you can't deal with failure if everything's been handed to you. Our students, they're growing up in a situation that they look around, they feel powerless, they feel hopeless. And they are being told, the narrative is that they're being told they're destined for failure, right? They're saying that that's where they're gonna end up because that's all they see around them. Like Randy said, you're a productive environment. That's just the way it is, right? So our students excel and do well when given opportunity. They've dealt with failure all their life, right? They're more resilient. They're more willing to put the work in, right? This is something that's brand new. You're opening up a whole new world to them. And they absorb that, they take it in, and they excel and they do well. And to Randy's point, pay them what they deserve, not because they're part of a program, a community organization or whatever. That doesn't diminish what they can add to the, the, what value they bring. You know what I'm saying? They want to put the work in, like Gary said, and that's going to speak volumes. So I would encourage everyone to do as much as they can to help close that gap. You know, if that means supporting Greenwood or hiring an intern, donating a project for kids to work on this summer, trust me, I can help you find a way to, to give back and to help right now. It's not that difficult in my book. All right, Randy, I'm going to let you go next because I'm actually going to let Gary have the last word. Uh, thank you. So I'd say one of the things Gary mentioned early in a podcast, which I think was really important to, to restate, educating the youth, the people that are in the, the teenage years, I mean, around how to manage money and how to markets work and just how to do that responsibly, something I wish I'd start sooner that I had those resources. The resources are there today. We should do that. But in addition to that, please join us in the conversation, not just on the financial institution, institutional side, but on the entrepreneurial side. If you are a JP Morgan, a Bank of America, a Wind Trust, a Northern Trust, please engage with us. Let's talk about how we can create programs, create future entrepreneurs that will help support your innovation initiatives within your corporate structures. Those talk about economic empowerment, the balance sheets in the income statement looks very different when you have an exit and you're in your 20s. And that, in my opinion, is why I'm so passionate about encouraging entrepreneurship, and particularly in the fintech space um, amongst people of color, because I see that that is life-changing economic events that you, can, that you can participate in. And today, we're just absent of that conversation. And the, the stat that you read out about Chris Brummer at the beginning of the show 
appreciate the nod to Georgetown, but it's too low a percentage of entrepreneurs of color that we're having in this country. And that means we're not participating in the biggest upside that's being generated right now. You're up, Gary. I would say, first and foremost, if you have the ability and you're so inclined, uh, look for ways to give people economic opportunity. Uh, It's economic opportunity that's going to carry them the furthest. And in a time like now where we have you know, many of the basic rights that were afforded to us via the legislative opportunity, I think now it's, it's time to think more from an economic perspective. For those looking for the opportunity, show up, head down, do the work, get that body of work together. You'll have the ability to d- deliver on what you say you can, you know, once you've had body of work. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Tech on Reg listeners, We'll get back to algorithms and AI soon enough, but this conversation was too important to not have. Thank you, Bavine, Gary, and Randy. Always great having you back. Until next time, everyone. 